It's good to be here. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors, elders here at Peninsula Grace, and we preach into you today out of Matthew. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapters 26, and then we'll peek ahead a little bit into 27. The verses will be on the screen in the English Standard Version. Today's message is called Beauty and the Betrayal. It is, as I would say, a tale as old as time. Because it's the... Wow. All right. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, life is full of things on the surface that look contradictory at first glance. Uh, and speaking of, of Disney songs, um, Pinocchio, when his nose grows, uh, what is he doing when his nose grows? He is... He's telling a lie, correct. And so, but what happens, we get into this contradictory statement, at least on the surface, when he, Pinocchio says, um, oh, there it is. my nose will grow now. now wait a second. If, not, two options here, right? A, if it does grow, and he was telling the truth, that means his nose shouldn't actually be growing, right? Because he was lying. But... If it doesn't grow, and he says it was going to, that means he was lying, which means his nose should indeed be growing, right? It's a mind blown. And this is what we would call a paradox. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. In other words, on the surface, it looks like the both things can't be. But when we press in a little bit deeper, we might see that there is an actual way that those two can coexist. So a statement that might seem to be a paradox at first would be, I'm in total control, but don't let my wife find out, right? Or how about, um, as I said before, I never repeat myself. Or, or, or what about, and I've actually had this happen to me before, uh, keyboard failure, press F1 to continue. Now, wait a second. If the keyboard's not working, F1 is not going to, all right. And then, and then finally, uh, this poor little guy, I lost my glasses, but I need my glasses to find my glasses, right? It becomes this catch-22 that we see, or we even see this in theology, when we would say about God, who is all-powerful, can do anything, we would say. Well, can God, you've probably heard it, can God create a stone that's too heavy for himself to lift? So either he can't make the stone too heavy for him to lift, or he makes a stone that's so heavy, and now he can't lift it. One seems to indicate that he can't do the other. Or even more important, it would probably um, hit closer to home in your life, and mine is Swiss cheese, uh, where we would say, uh, if, if, if you have more Swiss cheese, you have more holes in the Swiss cheese, which would mean that the more holes you have, then the less cheese you have. But the more cheese you have, the more holes you have. So would we say that if you have more cheese, you actually have less cheese? Like, how can this all work together? And so our heads are spinning. And what we see is, as we shift from Jesus' final teaching here in the book of Matthew to Jesus' final act, we're going to see, he wants to make, the, the Matthew and, and God, who ultimately authored this book, wants to make two things painstakingly clear to us today. And we're going to see in Matthew 26, 27, and 28, the grand finale of Jesus' life in his death, burial, and resurrection. And they want to show us two things that are true, but on the surface, they might seem like they're contradictory. The first one is that, A, God is completely sovereign. A word that means that he's in charge, he's in control. But at the same time, we're going to see that we are totally responsible for our own actions. That every, every plan that God has is going to come to fruition, whether we obey him or disobey him. And we're even going to see that he uses man's disobedience for his purposes. And yet, man is still, we are still accountable, responsible, give an answer to him for those 
actions. They're both true. His sovereignty, our free will. And the other one we're going to see is that Jesus, in these last three chapters, is shown to be the majestic Messiah. He is God. He is king. He is lifted high. And yet we also see that he is painted as the suffering servant. That he will be lifted high. And he will receive all praise, all worship, our lives are due him. And yet he's going to do that through suffering, through dying, he goes to the lowest place to be exalted to the highest place. And we're going to see these paradoxes held in tension. The central idea that, that I want to draw out of the text this morning, our big idea, if you're following along in your notes, would be this. God, uh, believing God and his word leads to embracing Jesus and his worth. Believing God and his word, what he's told us, as we see revealed in the Bible, leads to, if we believe those things, it's going to lead us to an embracing of Jesus for who he really is. Um, if, if we believe that God is in control, we believe he's sovereign, we would say. If we believe he's good, we believe he's for us, we believe he's faithful to his promises, like we just sang, you are unfailing, then what this will lead to in our hearts is to embrace Jesus as a Messiah and as the suffering servant. And we will give to him all of our loyalty, all of our allegiance, all of our love when we see his beauty as he really is. And so I want to look at three things this morning. Um, the first one here is at just the right time, at just the right time. Uh, look at Matthew 26, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, so we see that Jesus, we said in Matthew, has five major teachings in the book. And at the end of the first four, he said when he finished saying these things, but now that he's finished his fifth and final section of teaching, it says when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he turns to his disciples, and we're going to see there's a shift here from teaching from his words to teaching by his actions through dying and then resurrecting. Now, in verse 2, this is what he says to the disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Remember, Jesus is God himself, and God himself, Jesus here, is speaking to his death. And this is showing us that, that it is part of his sovereign good plan to save mankind involves him dying. And he shows that sovereignty not by predicting, just predict. He predicts here, prophesies that he's going to die. And it's not just that he's going to die, but he tells us exactly when. After two days comes the Passover, and then and on that day he's going to be delivered up to, to death. Now, what's interesting here is that this is the exact day that the Jewish leaders don't want him to die. Look at what it says in the next verse. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And then look at what it says in verse 5. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The feast they're referring to is Sabbath that's coming in two days. And they say, if we try to kill him on the Sabbath, there's going to be an uproar. Now, why is that? Why the uproar? Well, during Passover, Jerusalem it blows up. It, it quintuples in size. Because what happens is many people, most people from around the nation make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And what is the Passover celebrating? Well, it dials us back to Egypt when the people are freed from slavery, passed through the Red Sea. And so at this time, there is Jewish nationalism and the desire to be a free people is at a fever pitch. It's not the Egyptians. Who is it now? It's Rome. 
But this day reminds them, just like God freed them from the Egyptians, they want to be free from the Roman people. And so what we see during this time, it was very common for there to be uprisings and revolutions uh, because of what they're remembering and celebrating here. And so when Jesus comes, the hope for Messiah to release them from bondage and oppression to the surrounding nation that has them in captivity, and, and they're going to try to kill him on that day? That would be like lighting a match and throwing it into a dry forest. What, what we see here is, is, I mean, that would be like today if we had an up-and-coming presidential hopeful that we thought was a, a political savior, and on the 4th of July, in public, he was killed. We know the kind of, but, but time's a million so, but what did Jesus say? Look at what, what he said in verse 2. Um, oh, there's the Red Sea. It says, after two days, the Passover is coming, and then I will be handed over to death. He says that's exactly, the exact moment they don't want me to die is when I'm going to die. And over and over in Jesus' final act, we see man's will versus God's will. And over and over again, even when it doesn't look like it, what we're going to see prevail is God's will over man's, even when it looks like man is winning now, he says also a phrase here. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. What, what does that mean? The word delivered up here, we're going to see this. Uh, this is a key phrase that he's going to use over and over here in his last three chapters. And it also it gets translated sometimes handed over. We're going to see delivered up and handed over used 15 times in this passage. He's trying to draw us to something here. And who's handing Jesus over? Well, we know Judas hands him over and betrays him with a kiss. We know the Jewish leaders hand him over. We know the Romans are the ones that actually crucify him. But ultimately, who's handing him over to death? Who's delivering him up to death? It is God himself. God's in control. It's going to be God's way, God's timing, God's plan as always. And the leaders are going to agree to do this, even though, remember we just said, they do not want to do it on Passover. But Judas is going to make them an offer they can't refuse. The Godfather. Make them an offer he can't refuse. And so they, they say, we have to do it on Passover. And, and so God unites this, this beautiful moment. The people have been celebrating the Passover for years. And it was this nod to this Passover lamb that was slain to spare the people in Egypt, their firstborns, from dying. And, and Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment of, this is what this, that Passover lamb was pointing to all along, that he would be the Passover lamb slain, not just for the firstborn of Israel, but for the entire world. He became a sacrifice for all sinners. And so what we do here this morning is we hold these two things in tension, that God is sovereign, and yet man is responsible, that God's in control, and, and yet we still are accountable. And, and we see this in Acts 2 when, Jesus, when Peter is preaching to the Jewish leaders. Look at what he says. He says in verse 23, this Jesus, and here's our phrase again, delivered up, handed over, and according to what? According to man's ideas? No, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God didn't just know about it in advance. He planned it in advance. But then he says, you crucified and killed by, uh, you, the one who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we see this tension that God did it, but so did man. God's plans prevail, but man will be held responsible for killing God himself. And so we see that God's will will be done. And what I want to ask us today, guys, is will we line ourselves up with God's will or not? It will be done. Are we going to be for him or against him? That's the question. Now these next two characters are going to clearly demonstrate these two options. And we're going to see one end beautifully and one end 
terribly. The first one we're going to see, Jesus is worth to Mary. Number two, Jesus is worth to Mary. Uh, Look in verse six with me. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, he's been, remember, he's been in Jerusalem, but then every night they've been going back and staying at Bethany. And here today, he's at Simon the leper's house. Now, remember, the Hebrew authors don't give a lot of details. So whenever there is one, we pay attention. And why the detail of Simon the leper here? Well, it would be a bummer, wouldn't it, to have your name engraved in the Bible with the nickname like the leper. Like that's what he's known as. Simon, that'd be like if I was Justin the dandruff guy. Like that would be a bummer, right? I don't have dandruff, it's all good. But, but if that was my, and then not only was I known as that, it was in the Bible, like for everybody to read forever, that'd be kind of brutal. But, it, but if Simon was still a leper, then, then the, the law would have said that they weren't allowed to be in his house. So what we see here, and in fact, for his entire life, Simon would have had to walk around yelling, unclean, unclean, so that people would know, they would, they would move away from him because he was contagious physically, he was, he was unholy according to the law, and so this was our first case of social distancing. You had to stay away from Simon. And, but here we... We aren't told this, but we could presume that Jesus had healed him, right? You don't come back from leprosy. So for this man to now allow people into his house, he must have been healed. And I think Matthew is highlighting this detail to remind us why Jesus came in the first place. He did not come. Remember what John 3, we all know John 3, 16, but the verse that comes right after it, it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him that Jesus came not to condemn, but to heal. And so maybe you come in this morning and you're feeling your uncleanness, that, that you're feeling the weight of your sin. And we need to be reminded that Jesus came not to condemn you, but to heal you, to save you, to change you. Now in verse seven, it says, a woman came up to him. Now notice here, the woman comes to Jesus and she's not named. Now each of the gospels has this story and it's a little bit different, but we're led to believe that this is probably the same event. Um, And what we see in John chapter 12 is that this woman is named, uh, she's identified as Mary, who's the mother, uh, excuse me, the sister of Martha and then Lazarus's sister, Lazarus, the the man that Jesus rose from the dead. And so um, what we see here though is Matthew chooses not to name her. And I wonder if he's trying to get us to keep Keep our focus on Jesus, that this woman symbolizes the right approach to Jesus. It's not about me and my name. Jesus, it is all about you and yours. And so she comes, and in verse 7, it says, with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, Mark and Luke identify what's in the flask as nard. Now, it is all specifically a pure nard, which I identify with, because that's the only way I ever take my nard. I want nothing to do with impure nard. I don't know about you guys, but this was used as an act of devotion, so you would, like common oils, like, we, like a vegetable oil or something that you would use for cooking um, and, and, and everyday use, this was set aside, only used for um, these kinds of acts um, to, to show your loyalty to somebody, your devotion to them. And John 12 tells us that this, um, this ointment, this nard that was in the flask would have been worth around 300 denarii. A denarii, remember, a denarius is a day's wages. So this is about a, a full year's amount of wages in this flask. It's a lot of money in one little flask. And so what she does is it says that she she pours this out. Now an alabaster jar, they were used to seal ointment uh, and to keep, they they were sealed at the neck. You had to see this long neck and they were sealed off so that the the ointment wouldn't evaporate. But once you broke the neck, that's it, right? 
you're going to have to pour it all out or it will evaporate. And so what we're seeing here is Mary is using it all. She is not holding anything back from her Lord, from her King. This is a beautiful act of complete devotion to Jesus. Now in verse 8, let's see how the disciples respond. It says, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Why are you wasting this, Jesus? And, and they said, for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, at, at first reading, sometimes we're like, oh, guys, don't you realize I mean, it was a good thing she was doing? But, but consider this from their position. I mean, imagine if you took a bag of cash with, with income from an entire year, like 60 to 100 grand in this one bag, and you pour, just dumped it out in the ocean. Like, it's for Jesus! And then, and then someone comes along going, you crazy person! Like, that could have been used for something better. You could have given it to missions. You could have given it to the poor. You could have given it to Pastor Justin, right? His travel funds, a little vacation set aside. And why would you just dump it in the ocean for Jesus? But I, I think some of the disciples may have very well just had these pure intentions. But we know at least that Judas did not. And John 12 is again, uh, it, it, it tells us this. In verse 4, it says Judas Iscariot, and they identify him as the one who's about to betray Jesus. It said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But the narrator here exposes Judas's heart. It says in verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but why? Because he was a thief. Judas was a taker. He was greedy. And what he cared about was having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he, the, he's fronting with, oh, we got to use this for the poor, Jesus. But really, what does he want to use it for? His own means. I'll, I'll oversee the money bag, and I'll give some to the poor, and then I'll give some to Judas. Then I'll give some to the poor, and I'll give some to Judas. And we'll get back to Judas in a moment, but look at, that's not what Jesus rebukes them for here. Look at what he says in verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. That's where we get our word beauty in our title here. A beautiful thing. He says, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. You'll always have the poor, you won't always have me. Now is Jesus teaching here that we don't concern ourselves with the poor? Well, of course not. That's not God's heart. We see it all over the Bible. In fact, he's quoting from the Old Testament here. Deuteronomy 15, it, this, is, this is where he's getting this from. It says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, because of that reality, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So Jesus is saying the poor will always be here. And so you will always have an obligation to give to the poor. But what's going on right here? This is a unique historic moment. And don't miss what I'm doing here. And I will not always be here, as I will be going. And, and he says, in fact, if you, like this woman, understand what I'm doing, then you'll understand that I am here to make the poor rich in a way that all the denarii in the world never could. As he spills his life, his blood for us. Now, in verse 12, it says, In pouring this anointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So this woman, Mary here, she symbolizes the two, the two key elements that we said earlier that God and his word are claiming um, Jesus to be. When she anoints his head with oil, this was an echo of the Old Testament pattern when a king was anointed. 
You see this with David, you see it with Solomon. A king had oil poured onto his head, signifying his position as Israel's king. And so here this is a nod that he is the true, the ultimate king of Israel, the majestic Messiah. And yet at the same time, why does it say um, that specifically Jesus says that she's anointing me? He said to prepare me for burial. Now wait a second, he hasn't even died yet. Why are we already anointing him for burial? Well, we, we understand that Jesus died the death of a criminal. In the eyes of the Jews, he died the death of a criminal, and a criminal was the only person that did not receive an anointing of oil before their burial. Everybody else would have. So what Jesus is saying here is preemptively, what they're not going to do for me then because they declare me guilty, God is going to see that it's done right now because I truly am not a criminal. I'm dying for the criminals. It's a beautiful picture here. And so what we see here is in a leper's home by an unnamed woman, Jesus shows what he's here to do, who he came for and who he wants to dwell with, the humble, the nobodies, the outcast, the unclean. And so Jesus here, he also shows he's worthy of this extravagant devotion. I am the king. I am God. I'm worthy of all praise. And, and, and yet I am also coming as the suffering servant that, that this is an act of preparing me for burial because I'm going to suffer before I'm exalted. I'm going to die before I bring life. And he shows that he's in control all the way. Now, did, now, do you think Mary knew all of this? Did she have all of this information that we just talked about in her head? I severely doubt it. But, but I believe that's part of what makes this story even more beautiful, that Mary doesn't have it all figured out right? She, she didn't go to seminary, learn everything there is to know about Jesus, and then come back and go, I've, I've figured it all out, I've done the math, and he is worth this exact amount of oil that I'm about to pour on him. That's not what's going on in our story, right? She's going, Jesus, I've seen you, I know you, more importantly, I've been seen by you, I've been known by you, and the one thing I do know is you're worth everything that I have. That I would dump a thousand of these flasks on you if I had them. All I know is that you're with me and I'm with you and you have all of me. This is a beautiful picture of devotion. And then he wraps up this story by saying, truly I say to you, Jesus says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, including Sobotna, Alaska, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. And I love that right now in this moment, as we are proclaiming what Jesus did, we are also proclaiming what Mary did and therefore fulfilling this prophecy. It's amazing. A cool moment to be a part of that. But then Matthew takes this sharp left turn, and he's going to contrast Jesus' worth to Mary to Jesus' worth to Judas. Look at number three, Jesus' worth to Judas. Now I want to read the story, and then we'll circle back, and, and we'll look at it a little bit deeper. Uh, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? There's that phrase again, handed over, delivered over. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. When it was evening, we fast forward to the Last Supper here, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it me? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, I always read this story. I'm going, now, wait a second. Wouldn't that make it painstakingly obvious? Like the one that dips the hand in there with him? That's there. Oh, it's Judas. We all know. But that's not what he's saying. They're all sitting at the table, and it would have been common for them to all share out of this bowl. And what he's saying is, it's one of you with me. One of my friends. One of those I've invited into the most intimate space in my life that's going to be the one that betrays me. 
And then he goes on to say, the son of man, and here's this tension that we said earlier, again, God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. He says, the son of man goes as it is written of him. This has been prophesied, planned and foreknown by God. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So he says, this is going as it was written, as it was planned. And yet for the one that's going to actually do the betraying, it's not like, oh, Judas, you played your part. Good job. Here's your cookie. But Judas is going to be accountable. And it says it'd be better for Judas not to have been born in the first place than to do what he did. So we see that tension again. Then Judas himself, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And, and Jesus said to him, you have said so. He leaves it a little cryptic, a little open-ended as he talks to Judas. Now, N.T. Wright, he says, you know, the figure of Judas was one of the deepest and darkest characters, not just in the Gospels, but in all of literature. That Judas, I mean, even people who don't know the Bible, they know that the name Judas is synonymous with betrayal. And, and entire books have been written on trying to get to the bottom of why exactly Judas did what he did. Have you ever thought about that? Why did Judas betray Jesus in the first place? I mean, here's a man who walked with Jesus for three solid years, was one of his closest friends and confidants, had been with Jesus the entire step of the, every step of the way. And then you notice at the table, when, they, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, did you notice they weren't all like, yep, it's Judas, we know, it's the bad guy, Right? Like, that's not obvious to them. We kind of, in hindsight, go, oh, there's Judas. But Judas wasn't walking around with a pitchfork and, and horns. Judas didn't have a rain cloud over him signifying that's the bad guy, like with the evil, sinister, like, uh, eyebrows marked on his face. Like, G Judas was just one of the disciples. They wouldn't have known that he would betray him, and that's the point. So why Judas? Well, I don't believe the story gives us one single identifiable motive, and I think that's intentional. I think this is leaving this open to know there are many ways to betray Jesus. And the way evil works is not just strict, strictly logical. It's absurd. And that's part of the danger and the darkness of evil. And I don't think it's just the money because he came to the priests before they, he even knew exactly what he would make. He'd already decided in his mind that he was going to do this. I wonder if after Mary's oil bath with Jesus that that might have been the last straw for Judas, that, that we saw Judas had a greedy heart, and he could be thinking, wait a second, I thought I was going to be a part of this awesome move to power, and that Jesus was going to sit on this throne, we were going to take out the Romans, we are going to rule over the whole world, that's something I could get a, on board with. But he's going to talk about dying, and he's going to accept her just dumping oil money all over him, I'm out. Like, that's not my kind of king. That's not what I signed up for. So I'm just going to go get mine before it's too late, before this ship has sunk. Now, what's interesting about the name Judas is, is in um, the Hebrew language, the word Judas comes from the exact same root as the word Judah. And at this time, when it was just the southern tribe that had been loyal to Jesus, they were the tribe of Judah. The, the people were no longer called Israel, but the Jews how the, the Greeks referred to it. It was the Jewish people. And so the literal translation of that would be the Judah people. But you could just as easily, because those two words are interchangeable, say that they were the Judas people. And I wonder if part of what we have underlined here is that it was not just Judas that betrayed Jesus. He kissed him, but we see the leaders throw him under the bus we see the crowd yelling, crucify him, that I think God's chosen people have collectively rejected Jesus, will collectively crucify Jesus, and the Judas people will betray their own king. Now, in verse 21, 
It says, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And notice how interesting it is how they respond. They don't point at Judas. It says, they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Am am I the one that would betray you? With sorrow. Like they're feeling the weight of what Jesus is saying here. And I think you and I also ought to ask the question, am I a Judas person? Am I one who betrays? Or maybe better the question is, how do I betray Jesus? And in one sense, we've all betrayed him, right? Right? And what's interesting is this word betray. Remember we said one of our themes is he was delivered up, handed over. This word to betray is the exact same Greek phrase as to hand over or to deliver up. It's part of this theme. It was because of the leaders that Jesus was delivered up to death. It was because of Judas's kiss that Jesus was delivered up and betrayed to death. And it's because of you and I that Jesus was handed over to death. Paul tells us that in Romans 4. Same phrase. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, he was handed over, delivered up, betrayed to die because of our sins. It's because of what we did following in Adam's footsteps that put, it was my sin that held him there, we sing. And not not just as the cause, but the motivation to die for our sins, to reconcile us to God. It's a beautiful picture here. And what does Judas get out of this betrayal? Like, he's going, well, Jesus isn't going to give me what I want. So what he gets in exchange, does that satisfy Judas? Does that give Judas what he wants? Well, let's, let's see what happens here. Judas does the deed. He kisses him on the cheek, and we'll see uh, in a couple weeks that Jesus is bound up and he's led to Pilate. But what happens to Judas? We want to fast forward to stay on Judas' theme here, and let's look at what happens in verse 27, or excuse me, chapter 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he sees what's happening after the kiss. He's being bound, led away to Pilate. He changed his mind. Judas goes, whoa. And this word changed his mind. This is the phrase that could be translated repented. There's different words for repentance, but this is one of them. And we ask the question, wait a second, did Judas have a heart change? And where does that lead him standing before God? Like, which direction is Judas going here? Because he certainly did one of the worst things you could ever imagine, but then it says he repented. Now, I wonder if, if there is an intentional um, being vague here by the author to remind us that, hey, you and I, we don't truly know the state of another person's soul. That's not our job. What, what Judas's heart, what, that's, that's between him and God, just like it is between me and God. So we do not know, but what we see is Judas tries to undo what he's done, and before, potentially before it's too late. Look at verse, the rest of verse 3. And Judas brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He goes back to the temple and says, it's blood money. I see what I've done. And, and look at his words. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Because I'm wrong. I was the one that was guilty, not Jesus. And I see that now. But what do they say to him? What is that to us? See to it yourself. Now remember, the temple was the place that the Jewish people came to sacrifice and receive forgiveness of sins through the priests. And here Judas comes confessing his sin and saying that I'm looking for mercy and forgiveness. And this was the one place he should have received it. But he doesn't. Once again, Matthew is showing this old system is broken. The place for forgiveness and mercy will no longer be the temple, but it will be through Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Now, while I do think Judas's repentance is possible, 
I don't think it's ultimately probable, and I say that because of where his story ends. In verse 5, it says, Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. And we see there's prophecies fulfilled even in the way that that goes down. Now, when rain falls on a mountaintop, the rain all falls pretty much in the same place, right? Like if, you're, if this was at the Continental Divide, which this picture is, then, then some of the rain will start going down one side of the mountain, and some of the rain will go down the other side of the mountain. And eventually, even though the rain started in very similar places, it ends up oceans away. One's in the Atlantic, one's in the Pacific. Could not be more opposite. And what we see here, N.T. Wright talks about remorse versus repentance. And, and, and these things, just like that rainfall, they both start at pretty much the same place where you look at something you did in your life and you realize it was wrong and you even feel bad about it, you feel sorry for it and you want it to change, you, you want the problem to, to go away. But what he says is remorse does is it leads us toward anger it leads us toward recrimination, seeing being, the crime being done over and over again. We're, we're condemning ourselves over and over. We're judging ourselves over and over again. And then we see this self-hatred. I can't believe I did that. I'm such a terrible person. And ultimately, the remorse hill leads us down to self-destruction. And we certainly see that with Judas. Remorse leads us toward self, inward. Whereas repentance, repentance also involves sorrow seeing the gravity of what we've done, but it doesn't move us toward ourselves. It sees the sin that we've done in the light of who God is, that we've betrayed him, that we've profaned his holiness, and it does not lead us toward self-destruction. It leads us toward forgiveness. It leads us toward change. Ultimately, not toward ourselves, but away from ourselves. And what we see here with, with Judas is we see that repentance leads us one direction. Remorse leads us to another. Remorse takes us to a place where Judas is hanging on a tree himself, where true repentance leads us to the cross, where Jesus is the one hanging on the tree. So what was Jesus' worth to Judas? Well, ultimately, he sold him off for 30 pieces of silver. Now, these 30 pieces of silver would have been 100 days wages. So remember what we said about Mary's ointment, that is one-third of the value of the nard that Mary poured on Jesus. The author here put these two stories together on purpose and wants us to see that Judas saw Jesus far less valuable than the woman did. But also, and I, and I don't think these things are um, accidental, that this 30 pieces of silver was also the price of a slave according to the Old Testament law. Some of the Old Testament laws are super specific. And it talks about what happens if your ox gores somebody else, which I know is a relevant thing for you guys in your day-to-day -day as well. Exodus 21 says, if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner of that ox shall give to their master, of the, the, the slave that died, 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So what we see here is Judas was bought off for the price of a slave which is fitting because he became enslaved to his own desires, right? And we know that when we follow our own desires, it leads toward death. That's what Romans 1 says, that we desired something other than God, and God gave us up, delivered us up, handed us over to those desires, and that road, those wages lead to death. Now, what Judas is also showing is how much he values Jesus, and he values him no more than a common slave. And instead of recognizing Jesus as the majestic Messiah, 
as the, the rightful master of his life. He says, I'm going to try to be the master of my own life. And it didn't just cost Judas 30 pieces of silver as he chucked it back into the temple. What did it really cost Judas? It cost him his own life. We see a life exchange for a life, which is certainly a theme that we're going to continue to see as we continue the story. So G- Judas does not entrust his life into God's sovereign hands, and we see he does not embrace the all encompassing, all-surpassing worth of Jesus. Now, we have to land the plane by not just asking what is Jesus worth to Judas, and not just what is Jesus worth to Mary, but what is Jesus worth to me and to you. We said the central idea of this morning's text is that believing God and his word leads us to embrace Jesus and all that he's worth I think a lot of times we think of like words like theology, which is just a fancy way of saying what we believe about God, that we can think that that's just some kind of pie-in-the-sky religious psychobabble and that it has nothing to do with where we're actually living, that, that beliefs and doctrines have nothing to do with our day-to-day life. Well, that is, in the words of my mentor, Pastor Larry, horse feathers, right? It's not true. Actually, nothing could be more relevant. A.W. Tozer, in in the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which I could not recommend the book strongly enough, he says this, what comes into our minds when we uh, think about God is the most important thing about you. The most important thing, the most relevant thing, the most practical thing is what you think of God about. And when we think of him wrong, that's actually the foundation of all of our sin. Or he says it this way, the essence of idolatry, which is to worship something other than God or to worship God incorrectly, it's the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. When we don't think about God the right way, how he has told us he is in his word, it's idolatry. We're not worshiping the true God. It's either a perverted version of him or something other than him altogether. And so like Judas, if we don't believe who God is, if we don't believe he's in control, Now, we're going to find our hearts betraying him as well. See, what Judas did is he entertained thoughts that are not worthy of God. And he thought, well, if if God's not in control, if this Jesus and this path of suffering and death, no, thank you. I'm not going to go down that road. And so if God's not coming through, if Jesus' way isn't legit, then I might as well get mine. I might as well look out for number one. And the same thing happens to us. If we don't believe that God is truly on the throne, then we have every right to freak out and worry and try to get our own like him. So if, if we put all of our stock in and we, we, we worry about who's going to be in the White House come November, or we, we worry about how much money I have or don't have set aside for savings, or, or, or I'm worrying about my health and, and what this whole virus thing means, these are all, listen, these are all fine things to care about and be aware of, but not to put our ultimate trust in. And what happens is those things become our functional gods. And I think that's at the heart of betrayal. Betrayal is saying, I think there is something more beautiful, more satisfying, more trustworthy, worthy of my trust than you are, Jesus. And so I'm going to sell you out so that I can have that thing that I think will meet my needs or that version of God. So I'm going to take that, that money, that food, that comfort, that control, that relationship, whatever it is, I think that thing's going to come through me. You're not. And my heart, in a thousand ways, every day, says, I don't trust God. I don't trust his way through Jesus' death. And I tell, I, through my actions, through my words, through my beliefs, I show what Jesus is actually worth to me by the way that I live. But if I do believe that God is in control, if I do believe that he's on the throne, then like Mary, we will find Jesus to be beautiful. 
Mary said, it doesn't all add up. I don't, I don't understand how this is all going to reconcile, this paradox, this tension, that he, he is the Messiah, but I'm preparing him for burial. He's supposed to die before he reigns. I don't get it all. But here's what I know. I know him, and I know that he is worth more than anything else that I've ever encountered in my life, including my own life. And Jesus, it sure looks like you might be losing here, but I know that somehow there's going to be victory. And listen, when we come to embrace the true beauty of who Jesus is, what's going to happen in our hearts is we're going to recognize he's the only one worth trusting, and we're going to start to surrender everything else in our lives to him. Say, Jesus, you're in charge of my credit card. You tell me how to prioritize my money. Jesus, you're in charge of my calendar and my schedule. You tell me how to live. Jesus, you're in charge of my family. I'm going to hold them loosely. Jesus, you're in charge of my identity. You tell me what I'm worth. You tell me who I am. You tell me what I'm called to do. And we break the seal of the alabaster alabaster flask and we pour it on Jesus' head and you say, you can have all of me because you're more than worth it. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. You're worthy of every song we could ever sing. Lord, I love seeing Jesus with skin on in the Bible. I love reading about his heart as he walks into Simon the leper's house, as he embraces Mary, as she pours this oil on his head, as he forgives and comes alongside Judas, even as his own, his closest buddy, is throwing him under the bus. Lord, I love Jesus, and I love the forgiveness that he shows, the mercy that he shows. And Father, I pray that we, as your people, would believe who you say that Jesus is. Lord, and it's hard for me to embrace both sides. I love the idea of Jesus being in control. I love the idea of him giving me everything that I need. But Father, I'm going to be honest, the road that Jesus paints through suffering, through pain, through trials is not one that sounds appealing to me and one that I, I fear. Would I actually walk any road that he calls me to walk? And we might have a brother or sister in this room today, someone walking in, who's feeling like Judas, feeling the weight of what they've done, or they're feeling a tragedy, a suffering, a pain in their lives. We're going, I don't know. I don't know about this Jesus' way. Maybe there's something else that will get me through. Maybe there's some other way that I can walk that'll find what I'm looking for. Father, would you change our hearts that we would trust nobody other than the name of Jesus, that we would truly believe you're on the throne, that we're accountable to believe that and act accordingly, that your sovereign purposes will come to fruition, but that it's your way. It's through believing Jesus is king, but believing the path was through suffering and death to find life and to find victory. So Father, I pray that we would see Jesus as he really is, revealed to us in your word that you've shown us today, and that as a response, we would embrace him for all that he's worth. Jesus is worth it all because he paid it all for us. It's in his beautiful, majestic, suffering name that we gather and we pray. Amen.